our text today, our passage today, has probably at the end of it one of the most um, recognizable verses that, the, that is contained in the Bible, probably sits alongside John 3.16, and that is this verse, uh, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Turns up on t-shirts, uh, turns up on fridge magnets, you, you find it on tattoos, um, I, I see it on, on the shoes of basketballers, I hear it chanted at times like a mantra when someone's facing a challenge, almost like they're co-opting God into uh, their envisaged issues. And it's, and it's often used that way, and it's often written on things everywhere in our lives in ways that Paul never intended it to be used, in, in, in ways that he didn't see it being used. Paul intended for this verse to be written, uh, inscribed deeply on our hearts and written there out of learned experiences of the goodness of God to supply all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, which is what Paul will go on and say uh, to the Philippians uh, later on in verse 19. It's not some mantra through which we try and lay claim uh, to our future desires or designs. It's not some aspirational prayer that we, we pray and hope uh, that we can pray hard enough and, 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 and well up enough will uh, to have things go away, but it is a known foundational history out of which we operate. The reason for this verse and the reason why this verse manages never to penetrate into our lives any deeper sometimes than a t-shirt or a tattoo or a mantra is often treated like a life hack found in a fortune cookie. Uh, We just rush to the ending of this passage um, before looking at the context in which it lies and indeed in the context of this letter. And that context is that there is no uh, greater joy in life, no more comforting thing in life than to be in Christ, to have our lives in Christ, a a relationship with Jesus that um, relativizes all other things. And that is kind of the secret that Paul has discovered. The more Paul finds Jesus more valuable than, than, say, money, the less power money has, wealth has, to make him happy or sad. The more Paul uh, finds Jesus to be more desirable than material gain, then the less power material gain has to make Paul miserable at its loss or anxious at its acquisition. The more Paul knows Christ and him crucified, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 2, the more his heart is content in the reality that despite his sin, God has loved him in an irrevocable and utterly transformative way. Nothing makes Paul more content, more self-assured, more unconquerable than his Savior's love for him. And that's, that's how he... That's how he writes at the end of Galatians 2. Verse 13, this verse, this famous verse, I believe is more of of a reflective moment, like a warm blanket for the soul than it is aspirational. So let's get and see if we can get the drift of Paul's thinking here by dealing with what precedes this extraordinary claim. 
after the preceding section we looked at last week of this letter in which Paul invites the Philippians and, and by extension you and I to have this posture of rejoicing in the Lord always of bringing to mind all that God has done uh, for them uh, and is now doing in them uh, through the gospel and of Jesus and letting that shape our relationships we saw how Paul reminded these two women to to agree in the Lord and letting that shape our environments And Paul now reveals that that is something that he has had to learn to do himself and that their actual participation and partnering in the work of the gospel by by sending this financial gift uh, that's literally covering his expenses to be in prison is yet another lesson in Paul's life that causes him to, to rejoice in the goodness of God. And the language is exuberant and emotional, but it's also quite... Uh, clarified and cautious he says i rejoice in the lord greatly now at length that you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity for epaphroditus to turn up out of the blue after years of not having uh, any contact with the philippian church and revive their concerns there's two things to paul the philippians are still invested in the work of the gospel this act of generosity is indicative of the work of Jesus in the life of these people, in the life of this church. And Paul would have cast his mind back those 10 years, back to his time in Macedonia, when it was the Philippians alone who supported Paul uh, in very, very turbulent time. And Paul actually goes on to write about that in verses 15 to 16, saying that, you know what? You've, you have this desire. It's a desire of preparedness. It's the desire of willingness uh, to, be, to share and to partner in the work of the gospel. It's not reactionary. It's not recklessness, but it's this calculated readiness. But Paul is also rejoicing greatly in the Lord because the generosity of the Philippians has once again served as an example of the sovereign provision of God to enable Paul to continue to do all the things that Jesus has called him to. Unsolicited by Paul, but prompted by the Holy Spirit, their gift reminds Paul once again of the sovereign uh, timing of God, the sovereign goodness of God over his needs, that he is not unseen, uh, that his needs are not unknown, even though he's, he's stuck in this little prison in Rome. It's been, you know, approximately 10 years since Paul has received that support from the Philippians, something that Paul attributes uh, not to their desire, but to their capacity. This 10-year gap is, is not something Paul says they, um, they, they're just neglecting him. They have always been concerned for Paul, but circumstances like their own poverty, which, which is something that Paul mentions in another letter to the, to the Corinthians, and perhaps just not actually knowing where Paul is or not being able to get to him, like Paul's not exactly known for standing still. These are the factors that may have hindered their, their continuous ongoing support of Paul. But once they learned that Paul was in prison, Not even a 1,500-kilometer journey that nearly kills Epaphroditus could stand in the way of their desire to aid Paul. And here, and in this um, little sentence here, we get the first hint of of what will be Paul's main assertion, that he has learned to be content regardless of his situations. Paul has no thought of himself over these last 10 years. God has looked after him by other means. He's not about to play the victim when he writes back uh, to the 
to the um, Philippians. But rather, Paul points to the desire of the Philippians and their readiness to be generous. This is a sure sign that the gospel has come and Jesus has transformed the hearts and relativized their relationship with things like wealth. To be able to practice uh, adventurous, loving generosity that sees them prepared to act uh, for the well-being of others, uh, brothers and sisters and their neighbors when the need arises. You know, nothing gives uh, you strength to be where God has placed you, even if it's in a prison cell, uh, chained to a Roman guard, um, like the comfort of God expressed through the love and the generosity of brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's always a reason to rejoice in the Lord because he is true to his promises. And sometimes that's through his people. And Paul is still learning another lesson about the goodness of God to um, provide for him. But Paul is also concerned that his gratitude could be misinterpreted by the Philippians or uh, misused by those who are in ministry out of selfish ambition. We read about them earlier. They might charge Paul with only being interested in you know, the actual receiving of money for himself. So while Paul's language is exuberant, it's also carefully thought out. Paul states that he is, he is, um, that he is not speaking out of being in need this is not why paul's talking about rejoicing this is not why paul is writing back he does not want anyone to think that he is voicing his thanks in a way that leads to the philippians feeling an ongoing obligation thanks for your generous support should go some way to covering some of the costs around here not sure how i'm going to afford a flight back home but you know thank you for what you've done that's not what that's not how paul intends this to be received Paul will be content whether the money comes or it doesn't. He lives above his circumstances, not under them. And he is grateful, uh, but not controlled uh, by the gifts. And there are plenty of people around Paul who preach out of selfish ambition, who have no moral qualms about soliciting money out of people. But Paul is not one, and he has no need to be. Paul is content in the process. Paul is content in his calling because he has learned that his joy is independent of anything external. Paul has Christ as an abiding reality. Now, outside aid is necessary for his Christian life to be a, a source of his joy. And this is Paul describing the all-sufficiency of Christ to be un to be an unchanging constant in a, in a violent, volatile world. He has learnt that people, he has learnt that places and powers are all limited in their capacity, but Jesus is not. But the, but the all-sufficiency of Jesus is not something that was kind of just miraculously sort of downloaded into Paul, implemented into him at his conversion. I'm sure if he was pressed at that moment, uh, he could have given a convincing sermon on uh, on it, based on the uh, the recent encounter with the risen Lord Jesus as an empirical fact that stood before him, and now applying that with his incredible grasp of Scripture, but Paul could not have told you that it is the basis of his contentment. That is something that he would have had to learn through experience. And it is something that we all have to learn through experience. It's why earlier on in this letter in chapter 2, that Paul says we need to work out our salvation. We need to, we are to grow in our spiritual maturity through all of the circumstances and encounters that our faith brings us into. 
And out of that grows the basis for our contentment. Out of each time we see the Lord working in our lives and getting us through things, we we begin to trust. We begin to feel content with this. It's a non-anxious presence in all situations. Uh, This unshakable peace, unconquerable joy as Jesus uh, replaces our dependency on external things with dependency on him. The externals kind of all remain. They don't change. They're not taken away, but they are uh, relativized in importance to the immutable and irreducible comfort, love, grace, uh, power, and presence of Jesus. Paul gives three pairs of circumstances to give the scope of, 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 you know, in all situations. And all of these things, he has learned the secret of contentment. He has been brought low and he has abounded. He has known hunger and he has encountered plenty. He has been in abundance and he has known need. And the secret, uh, which is a word that actually means to be inducted into knowledge that was once hidden and concealed, mystery cults used to use it, is that he can do all things. This is what he's learned. He can do all things through him who strengthens me, Paul. In all these things, being brought low, in, in abundance, in hunger, in, in, in plenty, uh, in abundance and knowing need. Paul has discovered that it is Jesus that relativizes all of those situations for his contentment. And this is not something that he learned from his parents, his heritage. It is not something that he learned from sitting at the feet of Gamelia. It was not something that was indebted to him because of his piety, his cultic practice. Those things, Paul says, are not the foundation for contentment. In fact, they are the very things that must be replaced and and um, um, revitalized by Christ. Contentment was learned through obedience and trust in Jesus. Through the highs of all of Paul's ministry, through the lows of all of Paul's Christian life, through every situation. Nowhere in Scripture does God promise us that he is going to take us out of environment, out of circumstances, miraculously shield us from things, but rather that he will provide the strength to mature in our faith as we bear witness to the goodness of God, as we move through Uh, all these circumstances and situations. Now for Paul, this learning began on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, uh, 1 to 9, and Paul is converted. Now it's kind of a uh, a low high, if you like, as Paul realizes how wicked he is, how far away from God he is, but then in Christ, how loved he is, loved uh, beyond the heavens. Well, at least that's what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, uh, 15 to 16. You can look that up. That's where that little saying comes from. And then in Acts 9, 21, Paul's straight into ministry and he's, and he's firing and he confounds the Jews as he systematically and substantively proves the legitimacy of Jesus, the man that they just crucified, as the Christ, God's salvation. And that's, that's a high. Like Paul's like, yeah, now I'm, now I'm, I'm rolling. And then two verses later in this letter, in verse 23, uh, Paul's old acquaintances, these people that he knew like family, uh, those that he went to law school with, those that he worked with in the synagogue, uh, they're not all that grateful for Paul's new applied understanding of Scripture. So they they plot to kill him. Now, when your friends and and the whole world behind you begin to plot to kill you, that's a low. So Paul escapes Jerusalem. 
uh, escapes to Jerusalem, sorry, where all the Christians that he and his old friends uh, wanted dead are hanging out. And strangely, they are not too embracing of Paul when he turns up. And so he finds that he is a man with no people uh, and, and no home. Now, that's a low. It's lonely. Christianity is not all beer and Skittles. But the one person who hasn't abandoned Paul in any of this is Jesus. And the learning is taking place. In Acts, 20, in Acts 9, 27, Barnabas steps in and he goes in as a character witness uh, for Paul. And that's a high. Until a bunch of Greek philosophers don't take too kindly to Paul's incredible kind of preaching power and the gospel message. And they're now seeking to kill him. So we're, we're back down to a low again in Paul's life. And you don't hear Paul saying, hey, no worries, bro. To live as Christ, to die is gain. No, you see Paul packing his bags and leaving and heading home back to his mum. Back to Tarsus and the safety of family. And for the next eight or so years, Paul is preaching in Syria and uh, Sicilica. Uh, this is the silent years. He's, but he's learning in this time. He's learning to lean on and lean into Jesus. Learning to trust in him. Until uh, Barnabas comes and finds him and they spend a year together in Antioch. And, and, and this is a high again. It's in Antioch that, that, that the disciples, the followers of the way, are first called Christians. And Paul and Barnabas are enjoying a, a good season of ministry and maybe weekend fishing trips to the Mediterranean Sea. It's good times. It's good memories. He's even involved in a gift, uh, him and Barnabas, in giving a gift to the, to the church in Judea. In Acts 13, uh, Bo, uh, Barnabas and Paul are set apart in a, in a powerful moment by the Holy Spirit to go on Paul's first missionary journey. This is, this is good times. This is a high. But Paul is also, it's also a time of great peril as Paul and Barnabas are kind of dogged uh, along the way by angry Jewish leaders who hate Paul and want him gone. And we read in Acts 14, after a few attempts to kind of kill Paul off, not a metaphor, in, in, uh, in Lystra, the stones finally find their mark. Paul is preaching there in Lystra, uh, and the mob begin to whip up a bit of trouble and begin to hurl stones uh, while Paul's preaching and thinking that they've got their man. They drag his defenseless and lifeless body outside the city gates to rot. Now that's a low. I haven't, I haven't had that response to my preaching yet. I've had people make comments about stuff I've said. No one's tried to kill me. No one here anyway. But that's a low. It, 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 that's got to be a low point in life. But then rather miraculously, somewhat supernaturally, Paul rose up. That's how it's written. And continued, but, but not to run away this time. But to go back and up through all the places that he's just been through where he's been dogged and chased and stoned and to strengthen the churches. And Paul is learning to trust in the sufficiency of Christ to do what he has been called to do. And there he finds his deepest joy and his contentment. And it goes on in chapter 15. uh, Paul and his dear friend Barnabas part company over a couple of team selections. Now it's a low. It's painful when friends separate but in Acts 16 eventually Paul and his new crew which now includes Silas and Timothy make it to Philippi and it's a place where some of Paul's fondest memories are held 
and he and his friends are enjoying the beginnings of a new church and they're kicking back at Lydia's and they're eating good food, drinking good wine or whatever they're doing there and it's a high. But it's also a place where Paul and Silas are beaten and imprisoned and that's a low. But that leads to the conversion of the jailer and Paul and Silas are feeling good again but they've got to leave town because of political pressure. In Acts 17, we see them go down through Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, and it sees Paul uh, preaching the gospel, and it's taking hold, it's transforming people's lives. But they're also pursued by this angry mob, uh, these hired agitators who stir up trouble for Paul, mocking and attacking him wherever he goes. He has to leave some of his friends behind in Berea, and he heads to Athens and eventually to Corinth, and again, Paul is alone in his journey. But just as the angry mob chased him down uh, the road down there, so did the support of Philippians. This is where the Philippians uh, were supporting Paul as he moved down through Macedonia. So in the lows is also highs that Paul experiences, great encouragement. In Acts 18 to 20, Paul does two years in Corinth, and this is a great time for Paul. Aquila and Priscilla, he meets there, they're tent makers. Uh, and it's always great when you meet someone in, in ministry and you share uh, commonalities and they partner and they participate together with the gospel. And again, I can imagine nights down in Corinth where they're just sitting around a campfire at night. They're eating fresh seafood because they can now because Peter has vision and, and, and it's just good times. But in Acts 18, um, in Acts 21, the Lord calls Paul on to another missionary journey and there's two years in Ephesus and that's good times for Paul as well. But amongst all of this are trials and, and, and hard times and the content of that, the content of all of these years that we've just whizzed through are summarized in a letter that, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians um, outlining the cost of the call of Christ on his life in 2 Corinthians 11. And, and there's some people who are, who are claiming to be... Uh, um, servants of Christ and Paul goes are they servants I'm a better one am I talking like a madman like and I'm not kidding here I'm not exaggerating I'm not making this up with far greater labors with far more imprisonments countless beatings often near death in fact when Paul starts this letter of to the Corinthians he begins the letter by by talking about how they got to the point where they nearly despaired for their lives itself and it was only the comfort of God the presence of Christ that sustained them in this environment and then five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one three times I was beaten with rods I was I was stoned three times I was shipwrecked now I don't know about you but if I got on a boat and I saw Paul I'm getting off the boat a day and a night I was adrift in sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. Is this starting to sound like the letter to the Philippians? And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. This is... 
This is the, the summary of Paul's ministry. Now, some of that takes place uh, also in Acts 21 to 28, which is the story of Paul's ultimate arrest by the Jews, his Jerusalem captivity, his imprisonment, and he, then his imprisonment up and run, hopefully where they're going to execute him. That's the bio. That's the, all the situations out of which Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned the secret of being content in all of these situations. That in the working out of my faith through all of this, the one thing that I find contentment in is Jesus. And I can do all things that he has called me to do, all things that he has asked me to do, all things that the gospel lays before me because of the strength of Jesus in my life. And as we read this, this is Paul saying, hey, take a big, deep breath and asking us to think about that. Is there Is there anything here in the situations that we find ourselves in that Jesus doesn't know about? Is there anything in the situations that we find ourselves in that are greater than Jesus or that he can't grow us through? Paul says, I can. I can do all of these things. And the reason why I can do all of these things is through him who strengthens me. And now that all things are possible uh, is not all things, all things that I desire to, all things that I aspire to. This is not, it's, it's Paul saying, I can, not I may. This is not telling you that you can pass an exam without studying. It's not telling you that you can go and have an AFL career, an NBA career, just because you prayed really hard and Jesus called you there. No, you actually need talent and skill. It's not telling that you can preach a message without preparation. You can leap tall buildings in a single bound, stop a speeding bullet with your teeth. It's not a mantra. This is a statement of historical fact and future confidence. This is Paul telling you based on 20 years of experience, and let's face it, um, situations that you and I will never know in the extreme that Paul knew him. That he has learned that there is no greater joy, no securing contentment than partnering and participating in all things than with Jesus. Paul has found the secret to life and it is knowing Jesus. When Paul says you can be content in all situations, he knows what he's talking about. But what about us? And Paul is asking us, what about you? Have you learned? Are you learning the contentment that Jesus brings into all situations? This is Paul saying to the degree that your situations or the reality of the gospel controls your soul is to the degree that you will know either anxiety or contentment. We are being invited into taking the living reality of Christ with us wherever we go, and it should make us unconquerable 
and it should make us content and it should fill us with peace if we are just prepared to, to just take a deep breath and think about what's true in Christ and apply that to our situations and our circumstances. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this opportunity again to roll through this letter to the Philippians where once again Paul is pushing across the table to us uh, the, the, the realities, the spiritual realities of knowing Jesus, that in knowing Christ, we can know contentment in all situations. Now, prayer uh, for people today is that we would test that. We would just run after that. We would pursue that to, to uh, you know, taste and see that the Lord is good, to, to bring Jesus into our lives more and more uh, and, and allow him to shape and control our, our, our journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.